Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Hayes, and I'm joined again by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? I'm doing fine. It feels like we've been doing this a lot lately. We have been doing this a lot lately. We are celebrating the one-year anniversary of Peach Pod. We're actually recording this a month early because we recorded it the weekend that Luke was here in D.C. together, and and we could record together, but we wanted to record this episode. We wanted to do just kind of a a one-year retrospective about what we'd learned about politics in the year of doing Peach Pod and uh, where we think this show might go as we move forward, where we think politics is going. Um, it's just been a wild, crazy year, Luke. I don't know that we actually expected so much excitement when we got this started. Um, just kick us off with what your first thought is as we look back on one year of Peach Pod. My first thought is, I think the show has gotten better. <laughs> and so that, that makes so. me happy. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I learned doing the show and trying to find a good way to talk about things is that we have a unique ability to be a bit more critical of things that are happening in Georgia. And that is a important role that we should continue to have because and we were incredibly guilty of this. I know you said you were listening to through like some of our first episodes. We just like bought so hard into the narrative that Clinton was going to win that we ignored a lot of other narratives. And I think that is not something like unique to us. It's a pretty universal problem. But I think keeping a critical eye on what's happening in the news and what's happening in Georgia will be a very important role for us um, because a lot of the um media outlets in georgia are pretty much in an echo chamber and again that's not unique to georgia it's pretty universal but i think that's one place where this show can be really fun for me and also really informative in finding ways to break through the um you know the usual narratives and uh, break through the conventional wisdom because as uh, David Axelrod very uh, famously says, yeah, the, the thing about the conventional wisdom, it's often wrong. So that that's my first reaction. We started this show last June. The I think we were, we were near the Democratic con- – well, we were near both of the conventions. Conventions are what, August, late July, August? Yeah, it depends. And so by that point, Hillary Clinton had wrapped up the Democratic nomination, pretty much. Donald Trump was well on his way to being the Republican nominee. And I think I remember saying that, like, if you're Hillary Clinton, this was, like, the best possible candidate you could run against. Like, somebody who didn't actually represent Republican ideas, They, I thought that they were, that there would be a lot of Republicans who would feel like Donald Trump was unacceptable and... And I, I think this is what bred a lot of our confidence in the beginning, not just confidence in Hillary Clinton as a couple of Democrats, but confidence just that knowing what we thought the world looked like, because they were just these old rules of politics that we thought still applied. And I guess the lesson of Donald Trump and the lesson of the 2016 election is that those old, old rules just didn't apply. They all fell to partisanship. And I, if you know, I, I was listening to some old episodes and thinking about it. Like that is just the one thing that like we should have known. That. I, I guess everybody should have known that we should have known that like partisanship is what animates our politics today. Um, it has, it is really what has animated our politics probably since 1980, maybe the late seventies. And 
I think we discounted that because a Donald Trump wasn't a Republican or traditional Republican. And he had done so many things that when you think about like conservative evangelicals and, and, and people who like to, you know, well, um, I think it goes deeper than that. I mean, I think, I think we like most of the narr- and most of the media failed to understand that Hillary's message against Donald Trump was ineffective not only in swaying enough voters from the Republican column to the Democratic column, but to get Democrats to turn out. Because, you know, the three states that she lost that cost her the election by such a narrow margin, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, she lost because of the Democrats there. The Democrats didn't turn out for her. And in states like Arizona and Georgia, you know, she did better than Democrats usually do and got a lot of Republican votes because of her message. So her message got her a bunch more votes in California and New York and Georgia and Arizona and, and didn't change anything fundamentally. Uh, so I think on that front, too, it's important that we look at Hillary Clinton as much as we look at Trump as to why we got things wrong. Uh, because it's it's too easy to fall into the narrative that gets promoted because, you know, again, the conventional wisdom right now as we're recording this is that all of the Russia stuff and the corruption allegations is going to be a significant thing and a, a good way for Democrats to potentially win the 2018 elections, but that doesn't necessarily ring out as true to me because maybe the Democrats don't find an effective message to take advantage of that. Maybe something that we can't see happens and, you know, the economy crashes or there's a natural disaster and Trump handles it well or doesn't handle it well. And like that becomes a thing that's important instead of what's important right now. And there's too much of a inevitability complex in the narratives that we see lately. Like to me, everything, you know, from the Clinton election to Trump going down because of all these scandals, there's just a nature about it where everyone's like, eventually this will lead us somewhere. And I kind of just don't feel as confident in that. What do you think we learned? You know, so we, we took a little bit of a break between the end of the election and then the beginning of the legislative session. And, and we really did kind of go from huge focus on national elections, on the presidential election. And we, we did a little bit on the state House and state Senate races too. I mean, a part of what we found is that there weren't that many that were interesting, which is uh, sort of underlies some of the core democratic problems about whether or not they challenge enough seats. But do you think, do you remember like what, what changed in sort of the way you thought about how we do this show or, or how you thought about politics from probably the day before the general election when we were still so confident in Hillary Clinton to the beginning of the legislative session when politics, I don't, to me, politics just felt different. Did you feel that way? Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, the thing that I think it helped me the most, and I'm, I'm actually incredibly grateful for this because I think it's made me better at talking about this and looking into it is that before the election I had fallen to the dangers of data journalism I'd say and I have to give credit where credit is due like Nate Silver doesn't 
engage in this as much as people think he does because so often during the election, if you look at his coverage, specifically his ragging on it, he, in every article, would be like, Hillary Clinton is favored, but there's massive uncertainty. There's uncertainty on a level that we have not seen, and while the model says she's going to win, there's a healthy possibility she won't. And he said that every single time on every podcast, every time he brought it up, basically, anyone that would ask him. But at the end of the day, everyone only focused on the, oh, she's 60% likely win 80%, blah, 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 right? So I learned how to read between the lines of Dega in a way that I was not doing before because a lot of times I was a little bit too concerned with absorbing as much top line Dega as possible without digging into the Dega of other things. So I think that is a big place where I was making a mistake and now I'm not going to do it and not going to do it again uh, because I felt way too comfortable going into election night that Hillary Clinton was going to win where if you actually looked at what the Dega was saying that, it is. It was not that sure. And so a lot of people, especially with that failure, have been really, really negative against Dega and saying that the polls sucked. And while they got the eventual result wrong, they were not wrong about how uncertain the race was. They were absolutely correct. And the other thing is, and this is really important, is that the national numbers were pretty much right. Like what her popular vote margin was, was almost exactly right. And it yeah. was only the state-by-state results that were wrong, and Michigan's a great example of a state that, like, is historically awful to poll. They're not really sure why, but Michigan just sucks to try to poll. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, and I think this is very important as well, is to not let data journalism and data on its own be on this pedestal that says this is the end-all, be-all, and this is what you should focus on, because... And this is the thing that I've become the most critical of when you look between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is Donald Trump had a very easy to understand story that he was telling America. The story that Donald Trump was telling America is we're all being screwed. The elites, they don't care about us. They just care about, you know, promoting their own interest and their own view of how the world should be. And they don't care about you and they're not going to do anything for you, but I will do something for you. I'm going to kick out the Mexicans. I'm going to stop the, you know, Muslim extremists. I'm going to do all these things that need to be done because I understand that. And I'm for you, the common man. Whereas Hillary Clinton was like, that dude is, is a frog and he does not know how to do anything that he's wanting to that he says he wants to do and if you think he might be right you're a racist and you're stupid and you should not think that way and you're deplorable and the fact that i sort of just accepted that as an effective message and that we were not more critical of that is like one of the biggest failures i've had and so i'm grateful for that mistake because it's allowed me to look at it differently. And I think at the end of the day, at least for me personally, that's far more interesting. Like it's far more interesting to think about it that not only did the data matter, but like the story that candidates are trying to tell their constituents actually matters in a real way. Cause I think that's part of the reason why Hillary Clinton's team was ultimately unsuccessful. You know, Books like Shattered, which is a book on Hillary Clinton's campaign and how it fell apart, um, you know, they're definitely never should be considered as gospel. But like, I find it very uh, 
very unsurprising that one of the main narratives from that book is the fact that Clinton and her inner circle could never really figure out what their message was and figure out what that story they're trying to tell America. Because if you look at the campaigns that have been successful, the really successful campaigns, I'm talking Reagan, Bill Clinton, 92 and Obama's first and second campaign, they were telling stories about what America should be and what they wanted to do as president in a way that a lot of unsuccessful campaigns never can do. And I think that is something that should not be forgotten because at the end of the day, Trump, despite all of his problems, which God, there are many, he is an excellent storyteller and an excellent evoker of emotions and he knows how to sell something. And that's something that I think we disregarded. Let's talk a little bit about the emotional aspect of this. I think when you look back at the 2016 election, I think there are a lot of Democrats that weren't, they were happy with Hillary Clinton. They knew her record. They knew her her smarts and her abilities. And, and they understood the rationale for why she could be a good president and why in spite of some of the poor decisions she made around, you know, the email server and all that, that she was a good candidate, but the emails. Yeah. But the emails, um, she never did sort of get that like angry fire enthusiasm in the way that the people who supported Donald Trump did. Um, there was about a month ago, there was an article that, uh, Rebecca Traster wrote in, I think it was New York Magazine, we'll, we'll link to it, um, where she talked with Hillary Clinton and she talked about, Hillary talked about how Donald Trump captured a lot of anger and, and Bernie Sanders captured a lot of anger and those two candidates, it was easy for them to translate and sort of let be the pass through for this anger in a way that, sort of in the way, the old way that people talk about Bill Clinton is that Bill Clinton just got you and just got who you were and what your issues were and what your problems were. He felt your pain. That's and I don't, you know, and it sort of went from feeling your pain to feeling your anger and reflecting that back. And Hillary's sort of conclusion on that was, was she attributed part of it to being a female candidate and she didn't feel comfortable being the angry candidate and people seeing that in a, in a positive way, um, but she also says, but I won the popular vote. And that maybe at the end of the day, being the angry candidate, you know, Bernie Sanders lost the Democratic primary. Donald Trump lost the popular vote. Maybe anger doesn't really need to be, or maybe it's not the pr- most productive animating feature of politics. And yet the progressive response in the Donald Trump era to Donald Trump and everything that congressional Republicans are pursuing is to be very angry, very enraged, very outspoken. And it is a, you know, it's that energy and that to some extent that anger that has motivated and animated the sort of protest resistance movement. What do you think about like anger and politics and how that plays out in this era, um, you know, in the Donald Trump era? I think we need to get back to the empathy thing is what, where we need to get back to because I think short term there's benefit you can have as a candidate or as a party by feeling people's anger. 
But at the end of the day, I, th- I think the reason why people so fell into Trump compared to the other Republicans is because because he felt so angry and he seemed so angry about what was going on that people believed that he had empathy for them and that the fact that like I as a rural Midwesterner can't find a job because the factory I worked at shut down I feel like that's because of Nago that I just listened to Trump for 30 minutes rant about how much he hates Nago and how much he hates that I don't have my job anymore. Like, I feel like that was alluring to them because that was part of his message. Hillary Clinton's mistakes destroy innocent lives, sacrifice national security, and betray the working families of this country. Please remember this. I will never put personal profit before national security. Nobody should. I will never leave our border open to appease donors and special interests, which is what Hillary is doing, and they are being appeased. I will never support a trade deal that kills American jobs. I will never, ever put the special interests before the national interests. I will never put a donor before a voter or a lobbyist before a citizen. Instead, I will be a champion for the people. The establishment media doesn't cover what really matters in this country or what's really going on in people's lives. They will take words of mine out of context and spend a week obsessing over every single syllable and then pretend to discover some hidden meaning in what I said. Just imagine for a second if the media spent this energy holding the politicians accountable who got innocent Americans like Kate Steinle killed. She was gunned down by an illegal immigrant who had been deported five times. Just imagine if the media spent time and lots of time investigating the poverty and joblessness of the inner cities. Just think about how much different things would be if the media in this country sent their cameras to our border, to our closing factories, or to our failing schools. Or if the media focused on what dark secrets must be hidden in the 33,000 emails that Hillary Clinton illegally deleted. Thank you. Instead, every story is told from the perspective of the insider. It's the narrative of the people who rigged the system, never the voice of the people it's been rigged against, believe me. So many people suffering for so long in silence. No cameras, no coverage, no outrage from the media class that seems to get outraged over just about everything else. So again, It's not about me. It's never been about me. It's been about all the people in this country who don't have a voice. I am running to be your voice. But I feel like another candidate who came in and calmly spoke about how hurt he was to see 
his family member or his friend who worked at a factory lose their job. I feel like that can be as effective and maybe potentially more effective if that empathy then translates into a, and this is what we're going to do about it. You know, and that's the next step. Cause that's what um, I think always made Bill Clinton's campaign. So effect, uh, you know, effective is that's pretty much what he did is that his campaigns were very much of like, I personally am upset that, you know, the people of Arkansas were having financial difficulty. Thank you. Clinton. Glad to clarify. Tell me how it's affected you again. Um, you know people who lost their well, jobs, yeah. lost their homes? Uh-huh. Well, I've been governor of a small state for 12 years. I'll tell you how it's affected me. Every year, Congress and the president sign laws that makes us, make us do more things, it gives us less money to do it with. I see people in my state middle-class people their taxes have gone up in washington and their services have gone down while the wealthy have gotten tax cuts i i have seen what's happened in this last four years when in my state when people lose their jobs there's a good chance i'll know them by their names when a factory closes i know the people who ran it when the businesses go bankrupt i know them and i've been out here for thirteen months meeting in meetings just like this ever since october with people like you all over america people that have lost their jobs, lost their livelihood, lost their health insurance. Mm -hmm. What I want you to understand is the national debt is not the only cause of that. It is because America has not invested in its people. It is because we have not grown. It is because we've had 12 years of trickle-down economics. We've gone from first to 12th in the world in wages. We've had four years where we produced no private sector jobs. Most people are working harder for less money than they were making 10 years ago. It is because we are in the grip of a failed economic theory. And this decision you're about to make better be about what kind of economic theory you want. Not just people saying, I'm going to go fix it, but what are we going to do? What I think we have to do is invest in American jobs, American education, control American health care costs, and bring the American people together again. That this personally kept me up at night and made me feel bad. And that's why I want to be your governor or your president, because I think the policies that I will create will let people have a better story and that if I come back to you a year from now, you're going to be happier because you're going to have a better job and you're going to have the resources you need to be successful. And so I think while the anger can be really cathartic for people and that this was definitely a, you know, uh, go screw yourself election like this is not sustainable because that's the thing too, that I feel like, uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but like our retrospective for next year, assuming the show <laughs> survives, my main question I'll be asking and like be checking in on us with is like, was the anger sustainable? Was the chaos, because that's the main thing that we've seen since like this show began, because, you know, pretty funnily, like we began like right around Comey's letter saying Hillary Clinton's fine. You, you don't need to look into this. This investigation's over. Yeah, that was like episode like, number three, I think. Yeah. And like that to me is the beginning of the chaos. Like everything since then has been chaos. Sorry, guys. It's our fault. Yeah, it's all our fault. <laughs> we started it. We started it. Um, but no, that's just a coincidence. One of the few coincidences in what we've seen. But yeah, like that is what has been the status quo. And the thing that I've just heard from 
people I know, people I don't know that know me, <laughs> and just like what I see on like TV and cable news and just on Facebook posts and Twitter, is that everyone is like, well, Trump's been president for like four months and it feels like he's been president my entire life and that I'm now eggy and that this is never going to end. And at the end of the day, like, I just don't think it's sustainable. Like, I think something has to break. Like, the levy cannot hold. And I will just be shocked if a year from now we get together again across the table and we're like, yeah, we're still tired. Trump is still president and he's still causing just utter chaos every couple weeks and that every single time you think things have calmed down and that it's going to be a little bit normal, he fires somebody or he promotes a policy that's insane or he bombs somebody and it just throws everything into chaos. I don't think that can hold. And so looking back on the year that we just had, I think that's going to be the most interesting question is that we, this show is operating under a status quo of chaos. So is that the new norm? And that's what politics is now. And that it's an all consuming thing because when we started this show, I would argue that people in my friend group did not care about politics as much that. And even though I'm friends with a lot of people who are very active in the democratic party, even some of them, you know, like, we're not as concerned with everything happening in politics. But now, because I operate in the political sphere and I have this show on the president of the Young Democrats of Georgia, like, I can't have a single conversation where Donald Trump doesn't come up. And I hate that. <laughs> and if you would have told me two years ago that I was going to have to talk about Donald Trump every day, I would have just lost my mind. Yeah, it, it it is wild to me that, yeah, if you'd have told me two years ago that we'd be talking about Donald Trump all the time, I just wouldn't understand the world we were living in. I don't know. I just like... I mean, that's why I think it's again. unsustainable. Like, I don't think I could have talked about Obama every day. And I love Obama. Like, he's a, he's a great president. I was very happy with everything he did. But like, I could not just spend every day obsessing about what he was doing. And... I think, you know, interesting when we were talking about the politics of anger, I think the real the real thing that we're dealing with right now, I think the reason why we are always talking about Donald Trump is less to do with anger and far more to do with fear. I think the thing that we see from a lot of like the resistors and a lot of the progressives, uh, you're right. There is a there's a contingent of those folks that are driven mostly by anger and that they're mad that all of this stuff is happening. But like for me and for a lot of the friends that I'm encountering is like, they're afraid. Like I'm afraid of the things that Donald Trump will do more than I'm angry at him because it's going to affect my life, but also, you know, far more dramatically the lives of some of the friends I have and the people I care about and the people I love are going to be the people that really potentially could get hurt. And that doesn't make me angry as much as it makes me scared for them. Well, I also think that there's a mix of anger to that too, because... 
Oh, cer- certainly, certainly. It, but I just, I just don't want the two to be equating. Because I think that's that's a mistake that people are making is because fear is very different than anger as a motivator and the the stuff that long term happens is 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 important to think about in that context because what I was coming back and what I was saying earlier about having a campaign and a candidate that is about empathy is what I think is the solution to this problem because what I don't want to have happen is that everyone thinks like everyone hates Trump. This is all about resisting him and that the answer is we have to pick the most pissed off, angry candidate that we possibly can that will go out there and, you know, curse Trump, curse everything he's doing, yell and scream and that be the solution Instead of having a candidate that is passionate, that does have things they want to do, but aren't driven by anger, but rather driven by empathy. Because at the end of the day, if you're angry and you're screaming, you're not really going to be able to solve the problem. All you're going to do is exacerbate the problems on the other side. And what I don't want to see is happen is we swing madly back and forth between one an angry Democrat and an angry Republican that causes the other side to be afraid because well I think undeniably there were a lot of Republicans that feel the fear that I feel now about Barack Obama and what he was going to do it was far less justified and the arguments for it were a lot harder to make and it wasn't something you were seeing mainstream and non-mainstream outlets talk about constantly with him it it's just not the same as what we're experiencing with Trump. Yeah, it's on a whole different level. I I think about, you know, we're, we're one of probably a bunch of political podcasts in your phone or, or whatever you're listening to us on. Another podcast that I love is the Slate Political Gap Fest and David Plotz, who's the host of that show. During the Obama era, he would even get concerned about for instance, the Obama's use of prosecutorial discretion on deciding who and who not to deport and, and basically announcing that he was not going to deport certain classes of undocumented immigrants for what I think are legitimate reasons. But but Plotz was always making the case that we're sort of creeping more and more towards an executive, a president who um, has a lot of leeway with the law and how to enforce it and... and um, and that discussion of whether or not Obama took like turned up the dial too far on his prosecutorial discretion and enforcement discretion on immigration law feels like totally quaint compared to the constitutional challenges that we face with Trump. I, I downplayed those on the, on the episode where we talked about Trump, but it, but it is, I, I still think that they, I don't think that they need to define our, reaction to politics on a day-to-day basis and I don't think they should overshadow a lot of things but as a matter of degree we are dealing with potential abuses of power or um, you know potential overuses of power that are to a degree unlike we've ever seen um, and and I think that part of the anger the other point that I was going to make earlier about about the anger and fear issue is that and I don't know if this anger will subside but I do get the sense from a lot of people, particularly people who really supported Hillary Clinton, they believe that it didn't have to be this way. 
and that it was very clear. It's not as if we got to the day after election day and we're like, oh no, what is Trump going to do? Trump is actually in a lot of ways, very honest about what he wants to do. He doesn't, he's not honest in some situations, but his, his tendencies, his beliefs, none of it should be surprising. And I think if you're somebody who was really supportive of Hillary Clinton and, and really bought into the case that she made about Donald Trump, none of this should be surprising. And we knew it and it didn't have to be that way. And I think, I think that's a, a, a reason to, you know, be angry is that none of this was surprising. Yeah. And I think the thing that I hope we can accomplish here and, you know, one of my favorite things that we do is talking to not only candidates, but to other people is to try to focus on the alternatives because far too often the discussion in politics and in the news is this is how things are and will this happen or won't it happen, the horse race thing. And as I've mentioned almost every time we talk about campaigns or the Democratic Party, I far more am focused and interested in what could we be doing instead? What is the alternative to what is happening? Because far too often I feel that we just accept the status quo as the only option. And I feel like it'd be far better serving not only our listeners, but just the discussion in general, if we focus more on what is possible and what else we could be doing. And so in the Trump era, especially, it's hard and we're going to have to work hard to not accept the status quo narrative as this is the only option. This is the only thing that matters And, you know, it's our way or the highway in regards to how we deal with Trump, because I don't think fundamentally anyone has actually come up with a successful counter narrative and a counter story to the story that Trump has put out. You know, that's the thing that I find the most frustrating is that no one seems to know how to actually argue against Trump. And I haven't seen a Republican or a Democrat that, maybe John Kasich, actually. I'll give him a little credit. He he tends to do it a little bit better than other people. But I have not really ever been convinced, even though I firmly disagree with what Trump says and with what Trump presents and his execution of the problems and his solutions to those problems he has done is awful. It is horrible. And that being said, I have still not heard someone who convincingly and strongly can tear down Trump's arguments in a way that I can't thoroughly criticize. Because at the end of the day, Trump is still better than almost anyone else besides, like I said, maybe John Kasich, maybe a couple others, having solid empathy for people or presenting that empathy, even though I firmly don't believe he actually has any, he has an argument and a, and he's presenting a worldview that has that. And until we can find someone or find a unifying message for the democratic party, that is like, we feel your pain and we're going to do something about it. I don't think we're going to win because we get obsessed with 
Donald Trump did X and X is bad and Donald Trump is bad because people don't care if Donald Trump is bad. They care if they think he's going to help them. Donald Trump's empathy might be the greatest fraud in modern American politics. I would argue um, it is. What was your favorite conversation that we did this year? I know you did a lot of these. I, I did a few towards the end of our year. What was your favorite one that we did? Um, I would say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out my conversations with like people I know well and my friends because uh, I'm going to hurt someone's feelings <laughs> if I pick one of those. Uh, and I feel like those can kind of be a little more chatterbox than anything um with mine is one of your friends so you can go ahead yeah that's true all of our conversations are my favorite conversation kyle uh, no i no. meant i meant my favorite peach pod conversation was oh, with I, one of your oh, friends oh i know oh really okay well i'll be interested to hear that when um when it comes up but i think honestly of the ones i did my favorite has been the one i did with jason carter just because it was one of those conversations that i'm talking about right now it was not about a campaign. I don't think Jason's going to even run for governor, you know? And when we did that conversation, that was something that was firmly on the table. Now, if you ask me, I think I'd be surprised if that's what he did. And he was talking about stuff and policy prescriptions that would actually help people's lives. That was a different view than what was being pursued. And I thought that was something that just fundamentally was interesting to me. It was an interesting conversation. And just to hear about the work that he was doing, I thoroughly enjoyed that and thought that that is something that we should have more of and something I really, really wanted to see happen. Um, what about you? What was your favorite? So mine was the one you did with Cody. Yeah, Cody that's a fun one. I love Cody, and you know, I'm sad we can't have him on as on as more. But if, uh, yeah, what'd you like about it? If so, if if you missed that one, you should go back and and listen to it. We'll link to it in the show notes of this. We were so wrong. <laughs> that's the first thing I would say. Well, uh, but the other thing that I the thing that I that stands out to me now is that you know, and and Cody's friend of the pod. He he talks with us a bunch, and so. So I know this not only just through the show, but then through through the talks that we've had since is that Cody's a very thoughtful person. He is a Republican, um, but he is someone who sort of in the mold of somebody like John Kasich is, is willing to be critical of his own party and, and just like question like the base level premises and assumptions and and really hold those ideas up to the actual candidates that run not only Donald Trump, but you know, other, other candidates that run at the state and federal level. Hopefully we're not getting you in trouble, Cody. <laughs> yeah. um, but the thing that stands out to me is that in this Trump era, there's just so many Republican elected officials who have found it politically expedient to just kind of bend every which way to defend Donald Trump because they are so afraid or bent on tax reform. Yeah. I mean, and they're also, I think, afraid of Trump's voters a little bit. Um, and so that conversation that you had with Cody, I just remember it for being very clear eyed and, and Cody's been this way since too with us is just very clear eyed about what does it actually mean to be a Republican and how do you practice Republicanism and maybe practicing Republicanism requires you to make compromises with Democrats or to see things from somebody else's point of view. Um, and it was just clear to me 
from what I remember about that, that just like that is just like a viewpoint and a vision for politics. Um, and, and Cody's not a politician. Uh, so I, I guess he's not speaking as a politician in that interview or, or when we talk to him, but for people who are interested in and involved in politics, it's just rare. I think it's getting rarer to see people who are, who are more clear eyed and, and willing to have the discussions in a way that you and Cody did on that, on that first conversation. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that is what I hope we can do more of going forward is have those conversations because I think the narrative about what politics is that comes out of Washington and all of the media is not very accurate to what it is on the state level and the local community, you know, communities. Cause again, this is me looking forward instead of back, but like Athens right now, you know, I live in Athens. I love Athens and our municipal elections are our county elections because it's a unified government. So our county and our city is the same thing. Um, like that's going to be incredibly interesting. And I'm hoping that we get to do a lot of interviews with the folks running for county commission and mayor and the other city elections there. And while that's not going to be relevant to everyone in Georgia on its face, I argue it is because I think from just what I've heard and how things seem to be shaping up, there's going to be a very, very solid argument for taking Athens forward, taking it in a different direction than it's been in, and sort of like what the consequences of not doing that will be. And there'll be a narrative for how we can be a better government for our uh, citizens and provide more for them and put them, set everyone up for success having those kinds of debates and fleshing out those ideas in a constructive way that's not based on a DRR by your name, but based on what's best for your community and best for your city. That's the kind of conversation I want us to be able to have on the state level and national level. And we just have failed and it's not any particular person's fault. It's just things have become so ridiculously convoluted and partisan that those conversations not only seem impossible, they seem absurd. And I want to be able to get us away from that and see if we can try to have those kinds of local conversations on a broader scale, because at the end of the day, they matter just as much. And if you're unable to put together a vision for your state or your country in the same way that you can on the, the you know county level, I think there's going to be really negative consequences to that. Well, let's uh, dig into the state level stuff a little bit. We are, we are a Georgia politics podcast, but the saying during the fall election season was hashtag always Trump. So oh. here we are 40 minutes in and we're hashtag always Trump. But let's talk a little bit about the 2017 legislative session and what we found because you know, th- there's a lot of people that can talk about national politics. It's, you know, a lot of the information is very easily accessible. We know a lot of, you know, the high level details just from reading national reporting. It is so much more challenging on the state level to actually even just get the basics of what's going on. And there's, it's it's not the fault of the handful of great reporters that do cover the legislature, but it's just the fact that there's just not enough of them that I found to be one of the most challenging parts of covering the state legislature. You know, we've both been involved in 
the state legislature. I was a policy aide for Spencer Fry for off and on for quite a while. Um, you know, and, and part of my primary responsibility in working with Spencer was just to like learn about policy issues and what the actual ramifications were and what they actually meant for the people of Georgia. And it's very difficult, I think, to actually find out what those impacts are. I think we know broadly and we can speak about, you know, if, if somebody doesn't have access to healthcare, what, you know, the broad implications of that actually are. But the issues go so much deeper than that. When you think about healthcare, for instance, healthcare. It, hashtag always healthcare. Hashtag always healthcare. Hashtag always Obamacare. Um, no, but it, it goes deeper than that because it also structures what local communities look like in rural areas because hospitals and, and healthcare providers tend to be one of the few sort of guaranteed or, or always stable employers and then when they don't when they're not financially stable anymore it can really change the way a rural community develops and exists and and knowing to that level of detail what the impacts of the decisions the Georgia legislature makes is very difficult and then not only knowing it after the fact because we can look back 5 years later and say oh well you know the state never expanded the medicaid program and we still have these issues with financing rural hospitals but to know it in advance when you're actually debating the policy and deciding what the decisions are going to be and then to pass that information along which is what we attempt to do from what we know about the legislature to you the listener i found that really challenging and i think we're maybe one of the few outlets that really tries to do that in a really detailed and i think and and you you can criticize me for this listeners or Luke, I, th- I think we do it in a fair way, particularly when we try to get into like legislative analysis and what the impact is. <laughs> You're more fair than me. Um, but I, I think that's part of the issue though, is that there aren't very many voices that speak to these issues that are just fair, nonpartisan, non-biased analysis. And we of course have our biases, but um, that to me was just one of the most challenging things of how to tell the story of the legislative session is, what does this actually mean to you? Yeah, and the thing that I think is probably the most hard about it is, like, you have to consider the fact that the state representatives themselves and the state senators themselves have very few resources to come up with what those ideas are. The process for most bills being crafted, they aren't coming out of the governor's office or from the leadership is basically a state rep passing idea. They take it to the office of legislative council and they try to explain it to them. And then the office of legislative council comes up with, you know, the language for it. You know, a lot of the state reps aren't lawyers, so they're not actually like ragging their bills. They're like, I need a bill that makes it legal for you to drive tractors on the street. And they're like, great, we'll write that up and we'll figure out everything that is necessary for that. You know? And so a lot of times there isn't, a lot of time and resources to be dedicated to figuring out what the consequences will be to any bill. And so that makes it really hard for you to report on why it matters and what the effect will be because it's really hard for the people crafting the bills to even know that. And at the end of the day, in my experience, a lot of what happens with uh, Georgia and the Georgia State Assembly is like... So much of what happens is based off of personalities and people having these long-held feuds or long-held friendships. 
is how like things get done. And that's fundamentally from what we do and what we try to do here. It's really hard to report based on that because it's very hard to see that happening. And really the only way that you can is by just like hanging out <laughs> at the state, you know, the state Capitol a lot and seeing what the reporters see and like seeing who's talking to each other in the hallway and seeing who's talking to each other on the house and Senate floor. Like that's how you eventually figure some of this stuff out is just by like accumulating institutional knowledge that are, is, is fundamentally very anecdotal. And that can be very hard to transmit to anyone in a meaningful way. The other thing that stood out to me about that, I found this kind of funny. You know, when I when I first started working with Spencer, I was still trying to figure out, you know, just how to navigate the legislature's website and just be able to, you know, what's the best process for keeping up with the day-to-day information? And I'm like, man, you know, I wish I had the resources that, and whatever information that the actual members get. I always thought, like, you know, they must get better information. And, and, you know, they do this every year, and they've done it for a very long time. And then Buzz Brockaway, who we talked to in a conversation, he does these videos during the legislative session in the mornings. He's looking at the exact same rules calendar and, and general calendar on the legislature's website that we are. And I was just shocked at, like, because there were times where, like, it wasn't accurate or it was up late and it was like the information was just like way too late to be acted on when, you know, when we were trying to pass information along to the rest of our staff. And it it is shocking to me that at times, you know, unless you're in leadership or, you know, you're in the governor's office, I don't know that, you know, backbench members have access to good information, any better information than we do. Yeah. Cause I mean, same thing goes for me was, you know, chief of staff for, Representative Frying, I was at the Capitol with him every single day for the session in 2016. The only reason I knew anything that was happening is because he told me, and the only reason he knew is because he talked to other people. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just like, it's absurd to have it happen because, you know, I, I was um, the uh, House Minority caucuses intern in 2014 and i was interviewing uh the house rules chairman uh megas and like i found out something happened just because a couple other republican state reps came in and they're like oh we need you over at senate rules because there's a problem with this bill and so he's like okay we gotta cancel this and so you know he like walked out I'm like okay i'll come back later um you know like i would no one would know that the ajc would not know that like no one would know that unless they were just in the room when that happened and he's like oh i gotta go over there and talk about this bill and try to work this stuff out so like so much of what happens is because of like the personalities of individuals and people jockeying their bill versus somebody else's bill and they'll vote on both of them if they both pass but they won't vote on this one if another bill passes like all that kind of insane three-dimensional chess that goes on in the state legislature is almost the entire game whereas like in national politics Things, you know, the scale is so much bigger, the budget's so much bigger, the policy implications are so much bigger that there is a real discussion that is able to be had because there's a bunch of other organizations watching what's going on. So while one outlet might not have the whole thing, eventually over time, over like a week or so, everyone kind of gets all the same information and it gets it gets digested. And while I guarantee you 
there are some bills that move and some that don't based on who is the person who's the top signer and whose bill it is and who drops it. In no way, shape, or form is it at the same scale of Georgia, where you can like kill a bill if somebody who the speaker doesn't like is one of the signers on it. Like it, it could just die just because of that, no matter how good an idea it is. And that's something that just like fundamentally is not uh, a status quo that I think people are used to when they're looking into this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you probably. Remember, you remember when we talked about the super friends of Megan Hansen? And, yes. Um, who was that? That was uh, that was uh, Carter. James Carter. James Carter. Not yeah. not Jason Carter, but not Jason. Jimmy Carter the fourth. Um, yeah, and James Carter had what he put out like mailers. He re- yeah, he put out a mailer against Megan Hansen, but in a way, it was him really being against. Uh, it was Jim. Oh, Davis. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, let it me back. Let, let me back up. Megan. Yeah, it was in favor of Megan. It was against another one of her primary opponents because he was an ally of J. Max Davis, who was the candidate against Taylor Bennett back in the special election in 2015, and he just like really didn't like him. Yeah, the <laughs> like that. Yeah, like Max that's Davis why said- he did this ag. <laughs> J. Max Davis said something bad about James Carter's wife or something. If, yeah, if I remember the reporting something, something like that. And, and Just small town politics. Yeah, and like so much of what happens at the state capitol is that. And so what I'm hoping we can, you know, again looking forward, come back a year from now and say is like, man, we do a lot better of covering that kind of stuff and figuring that kind of stuff out and bringing that sort of analysis to us. And you know, I think this is an apt time to point out uh, how tremendous of a loss John Richards has been because yeah we we could not do a a retrospective without talking about John because yeah I think he was influential to us at the beginning when he passed away we talked a little bit on the show about how he was somebody who had given us feedback and encouragement in the beginning in the same way that he had done for you know countless young Republicans trying to come up in Georgia Republican politics but the other thing and the reason why at least particularly me, I felt so, uh, you know, like verified and and good to be recognized by John Richards was because his reporting and his understanding of the legislature was so good. And so much of what he reported on was that stuff we were just talking about is that, that inner room stuff and having a really critical, but entirely fair view on what was going on was just invaluable. And I think that's part of the reason why, this session was so much harder for me to understand is because his reporting on it on sessions previous where he was able to report on them was so not just good, but like critical. Yeah. And his, so like that vacuum, absence. yeah, his absence is like so, visible. so, so visible because for me and like granted, uh, I, I was at, one the session previous where he was reporting i got so much of my news from him while i was physically in the building (laughs) you know like it's just so hard to to be without him and it's such a tremendous loss for our state and i really hope that you know someone can take up that legacy and you know hopefully uh we can be part of that but it's gonna it's gonna be hard for anyone to 
really live up to the standard that he set. I really wish we had gotten to do a Peach Pod conversation with him. Yeah. Because I think that would have been a great one. It really would have been. I guess the, the one other thing to, to think about in in terms of a retrospective is uh, we are a podcast. I think you know that by now. Um, Surprise. But we, are, we were kind of a part of this explosion of political podcasts in the 2016 cycle. And then, you know, this explosion has kind of continued through the... 2017, well, both the legislative session in Georgia, but also how national media outlets distribute this sort of like longer form, take some time to think about it, content about national and state politics. What Kyle was trying to say is we were ahead of the curve. I don't know that we, I think we were like right in line with the curve. (laughs) Um, I'd like to believe we were ahead of the curve, but by like a month. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, what do you think about this? I just, it was so hard. I mean, part of the reason when you first proposed this idea that I thought it would be a good idea is that one of the things that I found really valuable about podcasts, I found it really valuable when I had just graduated from undergrad and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do that like, I liked politics, but I I didn't know a ton about it. I had been sort of kind of involved in in a little bit of campaigns, but I didn't actually do that much of it in undergrad. But I came to love politics and policy through podcasts because they were a chance to just like slow down, take an hour, dive way deeper into issues and discussions and what their importance are and what their implications are. Then you can do in any five to 700 word article. Yeah. And that is really sort of the basis for why I like to do policy and politics in the way that I do. I don't, what do you think about the way in which podcasts might shape the way particularly young people who are more likely to listen to these things um, understand politics and, and do you think that it can bring out any sort of empathy for people who think differently than you? If we sit down and have these conversations with people who, who believe different things than we do, but we don't end every conversation in a shouting match. I think it would be apt to say like why we started this. Cause for me, uh, the reason I did personally, I, I think this is your reason. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Is that like, we were sick of the bullshit, <laughs> you know, yeah. like we were, we were sick of so much of the political discussion being horse race, which I love and I love it more yeah. than you do. <laughs> and it's Coke for me. Like, I would say it's like candy. Yeah. It's just, I, I would take a level of higher. It's, it's a solid <laughs> addiction, but like, it can't be all that, you know, it can't be all that. And so we, you know, again, we both work for Spencer Fry, uh, you know, love him to death. He does great work. Uh, if you haven't looked into him, do that experience for me, was amazing and still is amazing because I still work for him. <laughs> you know, like I love working for him because it's so different than so much of else of politics. And my frustration is that that's not the status quo. That so much of what goes on is stupid and people yeah. not really thinking about what's going on, not taking the time to understand it and not valuing the personal relationships and understanding that like these other representatives and unpopular opinion here but true donald trump is a human being he has he has (laughs) like 
problems that go back years. He has... Like his decreasing battery life. Yeah, like his decreasing battery life because people are batteries, which I've been obsessed with this week. And every time we walk someplace, I'm, I'm complaining to Kyle that he's killing me because people are batteries. But no, but seriously, seriously. And Donald Trump hasn't been able to find his uh, charger yeah, his battery in his entire... His do you human think he, battery. Do you think he buys a new phone every time the battery dies? <laughs> Like, uh, yeah. the battery's dead we gotta get a new one <laughs> complete complete divulge of topic but i am so excited that donald trump no longer has my phone he just recently switched from a samsung s6 to uh ipod I, I, iphone so I know, that only, I that only has twitter on it only has twitter <laughs> which is great i think that's amazing i'm so happy that that happened um but anyway because now now my phone is pure but anyway back, but seriously like seriously 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 Donald Trump is a person. Donald Trump was born from a woman and he had a dad and a mom and they raised him and like he eats and he sleeps and he has concerns and he thinks about things just like everybody else. And every single politician that you've ever seen on TV, that you've ever thought about is a person. And I think that is so fundamentally ignored so often to our detriment that this is actually at the end of the day, this is about people trying to do the best they can. This show and other shows like it are a way to explore that. Because like for me, the podcast that really mattered to me and really made me want to do this, one of the big ones is Mark Maron's WTF. I love Mark Maron's podcast. I listen to it a whole lot. And when we do conversations, I try to think about the way that he talks to people and take that into account because I think that is what is missing so often is a personal story is about like, why are people doing the things they're doing? You know, and it's, it's a shame that Donald Trump and some of these other Republicans lack self analysis so much that it obscures why they do what they do so much. Cause I, I don't understand why Trump does what he does. I really wish I could. And that's part of what I hope to accomplish with this show. And it's part of the reason why I'm not afraid to talk to Republicans on this show and, you know, talk about what they think and what they view. Because I think fundamentally that's the only way we're going to come to a consensus is that you understand where the other person's coming from. And, and it may not even be a consensus. Yeah, true. But it just may it be, just be an, understanding. an understanding that we can operate on. Right. And that would be better than what we have right now. And I that's why I want to do this show because we talked about a bunch of other projects. Because like I said, we, we both were frustrated with the status quo. You know, we thought about think tank. We thought about consulting for people. But at the end of the day, what alerted me about this option is you know the boring racing of it sounded the most feasible <laughs> and that like life is a real thing and that like money is a real thing and this would be the easiest thing to actually accomplish but the more you know driving thing and the reason why i think this show actually continues to exist after a year is that it is an opportunity for me and you and hopefully others, because, you know, I do, you know, still, we, we still talk to a lot of people about the show, even though they're not on it. Um, there's a lot of discussions that I have with my friends about it, is that it's an opportunity to improve and add value to the conversations that are being had. And like I said, to cut the bullshit. And I think that is why podcasts have become so much more popular, is that, like, it's a lot harder for someone in a long-form conversation to just like BS their way through it. Like it's hard to do that. I've seen people do it and it's usually a fundamentally un like 
a fundamentally bad conversation. It's I, I very will, obvious. I will note that when we did two of our most popular episodes are the ones we did not prepare for. <laughs> yes. And this one will probably break all records. <laughs> Just kind of wrap up here. If if you had one goal for yourself on the show over the next year, what do you think it would be? I think these go hand in hand. So it's technically two things, but I think it's one goal. I think to be more critical of my own thought process and to be more open to other people's and to try to use the show to explain that kind of thing and to open up the floor for those conversations to get a greater understanding of what's actually happening and not be uh, self-obsessed with my own, my own thoughts and my own feelings about things. What about you? Um, I think the thing that I, that I hope that we can do with this show very much in line with, you know, what you said about making it harder for people to BS on a, on a long form program like ours is to, have candidates on and hopefully be a space where candidates feel comfortable being honest and thoughtful and being comfortable forgetting their talking points or leaving their talking points on the table and having a conversation beyond those. I, I think we did that a little bit with Buzz Brockaway. Um, I think he is a, a pretty thoughtful person when it comes to politics. Um, but I would like to see more of that. And I, I would like to, create a space where candidates can come and have real conversations because I think that what they will find, because I think this is what we found, particularly for people that we've interacted with about this show, is that when you sit down and you have a real conversation, people can identify with you. They can appreciate you being thoughtful. And and I don't think that people are going to pull clips from our show and put them in attack ads. Um, I hope not. But um, you know, I, I hope that we can create a space for candidates and not, not just people who are observers to be thoughtful and have thoughtful conversations about politics. Me too. And, uh, I hope that it won't just be limited to, to candidates as well. Cause to me, some of the most interesting conversations I have are with act- activists that would never run for office. True. But, True. All right. Well with that, it's been a year of peach pod. So yeah, too too many years more. Yeah, too many years more. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, y'all.